Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. And now for something completely different. Another episode of the Gig Cocky Podcast, part of the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. We are back after an open week of our own, and we're here today, not quite yet to talk about Georgia, that'll be a little bit later in the week, but instead to take a step back and look at what's gone right and what's gone wrong with this team over the first half of the season. It's week seven, perfectly bisecting the season, so we're going to do a little mid-season review, and to help us do that, we're going to talk to Will Helms, as we always do on Mondays, but instead of looking, obviously, at a specific game, because there wasn't one this weekend, we're looking at overall trends. This is sort of the time of year when season stats start to mean something, start to take shape. You can really assess some trends and things like that so we're going to talk to will about what the advanced metrics say about this south carolina team but before we get to will i want to remind y'all to rate review subscribe to this podcast and be sure to share it with your friends we really love doing this i love doing this and we hope y'all enjoy listening to it we always want it to be better so we welcome feedback and we just want y'all to help us spread the word as well all right so carolina is two and three after the quote-unquote easy part of their schedule And with seven games left, ESPN's matchup predictors, which are simultaneously meaningless and very accurate, which is very frustrating, but I I believe very much both of those things. Uh, But it says that South Carolina will be favored in three more games this year at Tennessee, Vanderbilt, and Appalachian State, which leaves Georgia, Florida, Texas A&M, and Clemson as losses. No surprise there. And this is a very reasonable way to pick the rest of the schedule and even before the year I think realistic predictions would have said the exact same thing in terms of which games Carolina was going to win and lose down the stretch except we would have been dealing with three and two or four and one to start the season instead of two and three and that's how people were sort of getting to the six and six and seven and five that was going to be a stone cold lock on the over five wins for the season we all know this and this is also the part where I'm supposed to say so now which of these games can Carolina steal to make up for the North Carolina loss or Missouri or whatever and I may have even said that last week so now I'm just making fun of myself but I really don't know if that's the right way to be thinking about this or at least I don't know if that's helpful in assessing this team Will Muschamp loves his every week is the season mantra and I mean you know that mentality is good and it makes sense and it's a cliche I don't totally vibe with that I don't like that mostly because it's just a cliche and it doesn't mean a whole lot. But I'm going to steal it, or I'm going to steal part of it. Because I feel like it's helpful in this conversation to sort of frame this season as two seasons, the pre-bi-week season and the post-bi-week season. And yes, I know there's another bi-week, but it's right before Clemson at the end of the season. I'm not counting that one. What was this season really about going into it? And I think to answer that, we need to decide why expectations were what they were at the beginning of the season. Did people think or want Carolina to go 7-5 and five because they really want to like drive to Shreveport or back up to Charlotte for another boring bowl game? Or is 7 wins now like an arbitrary kind of benchmark for Carolina where they should never finish worse than 7-5 and five if you want your program to be at you know X level of competitiveness? But for me, that 7-5 and five mark means kind of one of two things here. Either one, Carolina fans want this football program under Will Muschamp to be the kind of team that wins games that they're supposed to while kind of always butting its head up against the ceiling of that upper class of the SEC, the Alabama, Georgia, LSU, Auburn's the world, and not quite getting there. Or number two, 
Carolina fans have accepted that even when this team is actually really good, for reasons that defy explanation, the Gamecocks struggle to do what Alabama and the like do to inferior opponents. You go back to those 11 win seasons, there were always games in there that Carolina shouldn't have lost. It's just kind of what they do, and they're not the only ones. It's not unique. It's hard to be consistently good, but even when Carolina is really good, they lose games where they're not supposed to. So, leading me to believe that 7-5 and five was less about winning or losing the North Carolina game and more about having four or five shots at upsetting a top-10 team. I mean, there were five schools that you look at and say, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, Florida, Texas A&M all could be top 10 teams when Carolina plays them. Right now, it'll be four of those five. Texas A&M isn't going to be a top team. Florida, the big win against Auburn is kind of a nice buffer. If they lose to LSU this week, you still feel like they will be a top 10 team, provided that game is competitive because they have a top 10 win now against Auburn. Regardless, I mean, that's, that's sort of an arbitrary distinction anyway, but four or five shots at upsetting a top 10 team. And if you don't believe me in terms of that interpretation and how important that is, let me frame it like this. Because, by the way, I'm leaning towards the latter in terms of what 7-5 and five means. Will Muschamp, everybody knows this because this was circulated on Twitter and everybody talked about it. And it's true and it's, it's kind of cool and it's a credit to Will Muschamp. Will Muschamp had more wins in his first three years at South Carolina than any other head coach in the history of South Carolina. And people still want him gone. The people are done with him. No patience. Even after Kentucky. The North Carolina game was was the nail in the coffin for a guy that had won more games than any other coach in his first three years. And some people say, oh, well, you look at the schedule and you look at, you know, you're playing more games now than you were when you played 11 games a season. It's like, okay, well, that's one extra game. People can sort of justify that however they want. But the point is, they're not upset because he's not winning enough games. They're upset because he doesn't have a marquee win. And if you're a Carolina fan, which I imagine most of you listening are, and I put it to you like this, and say, would you rather Carolina go 7-5 and five with wins against North Carolina, Charleston Southern, at Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, and App State? Now, obviously, we're talking about kind of going back to the beginning of the season, what is hypothetical, because they've already lost to Missouri. But if I told you in the middle of August that you could go 7-5 and five with those wins and losses to Alabama, Georgia, Florida, Texas A&M, and Clemson, would you rather have that or a team that goes 6-6 six and six with wins against Charleston Southern, Kentucky, Georgia, Tennessee, Vanderbilt, and App State? Or replace Georgia with... Alabama or Clemson or maybe even Florida variance is really frustrating and I've said before on this podcast and on my radio show on 107.5 the game that the mark of greatness isn't about peak as much as it is about consistency but what represents more meaningful progress for a football program at least in college football I think you could make a convincing argument that the former result seven and five with basically chalk results and Carolina winning the marginal games, the, the games where they were going to be within just a couple points either way, like Missouri, like Kentucky, represents maybe more stability and linear progress, while the upset win in the second hypothetical season, you could say, oh, yeah, that's more of a fluke than anything. But I would push back on that. And not because I'm choosing to value peak over consistency when it's convenient. I, I just believe that college football is different than every other sport in the United States. The range of emotions that I think directly leads to parity in college football. Now you can say, well, it's Alabama and Clemson every year. Yeah, but I mean, there are tons of upsets every year. It's it's not like it's not like the NFL or the Premier League where these things just never happen, where the better team just kind of always wins. That range of emotions is impossible to either qualify or quantify. I mean, it's sort of like momentum, which every sport has. But with college, there's just something about it that's... I don't know. It's it's just it's different. And like I said, it's it's, it's kind of inscrutable. We don't exactly know how to, how to qualify it or quantify it. And because of that, I may be overvaluing the quote unquote program win. But anecdotal evidence just tells me that in college football, that is more important than than linear progress. And not that I'm saying that a two and 10 
year this season with wins over Alabama and Georgia would be a good year or make sense at all or even really be possible. But when we're dealing with these thin margins, you know, the difference between six and six and seven and five and you know, I'm I'm sitting here on the side of big program wins. Six and six with a big program wins better than seven and five and chalk. And if I ask any one of you or any random person on the street how South Carolina's 2010 season went, the first thing I'm going to hear is the Bama upset. Maybe I'll get a couple winning the East and going to Atlanta. But it's kind of funny. The Alabama game has been, I mean, has overshadowed even South Carolina winning its only division title when we're just talking about flashbulb moments from that year. And then maybe I'll hear a little bit of a lamentation of getting eviscerated by Auburn in the SEC championship game. And then, no higher than fourth on that list, will someone start to talk about that Kentucky loss the week after the Alabama game. In college football, more than any other sport, big wins matter more than big losses. Which all brings me to, I guess, the thesis of this opening monologue. People have been acting like, the pre-open week part of the season was the important part because it was all about you know kind of fattening up on the easy part of the schedule. But I'm here to tell you that those five games that Carolina just played and those three losses don't matter as much as the three or four chances at a massive upset that Carolina is going to get here down the stretch. Now, obviously, if Carolina just gets smacked around in all those games, then it's a moot point, and the North Carolina game is going to really suck. But I'm telling you this. If Carolina beats Georgia or Clemson or even Florida here in Columbia especially with how dominant Florida was this past weekend at Auburn, and they finished 6-6. Six and six. When I ask you about this season in 10 years, in 2029, when I meet you in the street and I say, hey, what do you remember from that 2019 Carolina season? You're not going to mention the North Carolina game first or the Missouri game or whatever bowl game Carolina might make. You're going to remember the Florida upset or winning in Athens and spoiling Georgia's college football playoff aspirations. And by the way, we're about to talk to Will Hums about the advanced metrics, which are kind of Carolina. The the FPI, the football power index that ESPN has out there, I think this is crazy, but there are people that are making mathematical cases for Carolina being, in the case of the FPI, the 26th best team in the country, um, despite being 2-3. and three. So uh, it's still hard to entirely know what this team is, but all I know is what has happened is not as important as what's going to happen. I think that's true in general i think it's important in terms of like not living in the past and looking forward to things and having perspective uh, but i really feel like carolina season will be made or break made or broken in the georgia florida and clemson games more than it will be made or broken in charlotte and the north carolina game or in columbia missouri a couple weeks later all right here comes will he's got the advanced metrics the pro football focus numbers hopefully he can help us make some sense out of all these advanced metrics like ESPN's FPI being so generous to a Carolina team that is just two and three after six weeks of the season. So here's Will. All right, on the line with me, as he is every Monday, is Will Helms of Prep RA, of Gamecock Central, of Twitter fame. A great Twitter follow. Underrated Twitter follow, I should say. I've mentioned Kev Roche and Derek Phillips, and I do plug Will's Twitter handle, but uh, a really, really good Twitter follow, especially uh, during the baseball playoffs. I've enjoyed your commentary on that and uh, all things football. And we're sort of at the midway point of the season, Will, and so uh, you teased this a little bit last week, and we both thought it would be fun to start to look at some trends because we can use season statistics now, and they actually mean something, not like after you've played two games. And it's like, well, on the season, this guy is such and such. You know, Now those things actually start to take shape, so I'm really excited to get into this with you. Yeah, I'm um, really excited about it. Perfect time with the bye week. Um, you know, we usually talk each week about, oh, this guy did this in this game, or, you know, they played against Kentucky and this guy played well. But, um, you know, with how the game last Saturday, we uh, perfect time, I think, to talk about season, how it's kind of going and shaping up. 
No doubt. So let's just start with the question that everybody's asking themselves now, the obvious thing to look at, and that is which Gamecocks have performed the best on a season that, despite the fact that Carolina's 2-3, and three, I think the advanced metrics are generally kind to South Carolina. ESPN's FPI has South Carolina ranked the number 26 team in the country, despite being at 2-3. and three. So some of these guys have to be performing better than you would think based on a 2-3 and three record. So who are the guys at the very top of the list for the overall season grades right now? So obviously you have Javon Kinlaw, um, who is just, again, absolutely dominating. Um, and it's kind of funny. He's actually, after this past weekend, ranked the third best defensive tackle in the SEC, which would make him the fourth best defensive tackle in the country if that tells you how deep the defensive tackle position or really the defensive line position in the SEC is um, with a, you know, we have our PFF season grades that are actually starting to take shape and be more reliable than, you know, Kevin Harris's absurd 98 or whatever he has after his six snaps. Um, you know, we've got guys in the, in the two hundreds and snaps um, and some of the three hundreds. Um, so we're getting a little bit more reliable, um, but, but Javon Kinlaw's way up there with the best of the best. And then I think, as you said, he's just climbing the draft board every, um, every week. And, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I guess maybe after the North Carolina game, I saw a couple of people saying like, is he really this good? And then pretty much dominated Alabama, um, you know, had his best game of the season against um, Missouri, played well against Kentucky and had by the metrics, uh, his worst game of the season, which was still, in the, you know, great to elite range. Um, and I think, you know, I haven't really heard any chatter about is Javon Kinlaw that good because he obviously is proving to be that good. Now, how much of this, as we expand this into a discussion about the, the defensive line at large, how much of Javon Kinlaw's productivity do you think is a direct result of the guys around him also having great seasons where last year he was surrounded by a lot of young guys, especially towards the end of the season as the injuries racked up, and then guys like Aaron Sterling that just weren't quite ready to be an every-down kind of SEC defensive lineman. Now he has an excellent supporting cast so that he's not getting triple teamed on every play. Well, I think it's really more in the perception than in how he's playing. I mean, his, his numbers last year by the advanced metrics were excellent. Um, he ended up with a season grade of 85, which is really good. Um, run defense grade um, around 80, and then a pass rush grade in the 88.7 range, which was second best in the country um, for defensive tackles. Um, we just didn't see it a lot because, like, like you said, he's been double and triple teamed every single game. Um, his, his season stats last year in 567 snaps, he ended up with only 22 pressures um, and still graded out really, really well in the pass rush, um, which is, you know, kind of showing that he was eating up double teams. He was, um, you know, kind of doing a lot of the dirty work down there. Um, this year in less than half the snaps, he has 19 uh, pressures. So at his current pace, he will, by the end of this weekend, pass his, pressure total from last season um and i think it's just that people are seeing it more often because he is in the backfield on more plays um it's not just that he's playing well in, in a way that people don't see he's actually um you know impacting the game in a way that the casual fan is looking at and going wow that guy's really good it's showing up in the box score not just in the pff numbers it's easier for people to say Absolutely. hey this guy's got four sacks he's near the top of the sec that that means he's good right yeah yeah definitely um, so who else on the defensive side of the ball? It, it's funny, the, the conversation about the defense, I think, has been dramatically different than the reality of the defense. And I've sort of been banging this drum all year that the unit has been good. I think in recent weeks, people have started to see that the defensive line is like really, really top class. Clearly the best one that, that Will Muschamp's had here at South Carolina, the best one since, I mean, you know, maybe those, those 
maybe 2012. I mean, it's, it's a really, really good defensive line, but people are so caught up with some of the missed tackles that, I mean, really people are, are concerned about because it's one missed tackle and a long touchdown. Whereas, you know, talk about the Alabama game, everyone was concerned about how many tackles they missed, but it was really Alabama that missed more tackles than Carolina. Um, so all that to say, I think the defense has been pretty strong this year in general. Who else has stood out um, in terms of the advanced metrics? So the defensive line in general has been really good, but based on PFF number, we're getting to the point where we're having enough snaps for some of those rotational guys to see who's been really good. And number two is a guy that we have not heard a lot about um, and is really making an impact um, on the game in, you know, kind of in the event, that's Zach Pickens, um, who has a 77.4 defensive rating, which is uh, tied for second on South Carolina's defense. Um, You know, he hasn't played more than, I think, like 20 snaps in a you know, 20 or 25 snaps in a single game. Um, but he already has eight tackles, um, hasn't missed a tackle yet, and has four defensive stops, which is essentially just a tackle that um, makes a failure for the offense. So if it's on third and one and he tackles them behind the line of scrimmage, that would be a defensive stop or a, you know, a stop three yards down the field on third uh, or on first down. Um, you know, something that would result in a, um, in a failure for the offense. He's got four of those. Um, in just 124 snaps, which is, you know, a pretty decent rate, especially for an interior defensive lineman. And he's, you know, starting to show up um, and really doesn't have a weakness. He's above 70 in every one of the major categories on defense, including um, tackling because he's not missed a tackle this season. Um, You know, so he's a guy that we don't really see because he's not playing, you know, 30, 40, 50 snaps a game. Um, But as the season goes on, he's quietly putting together a really good freshman campaign. It's really um, funny because obviously the expectations were extremely high for him, and then he comes in, and, and you're right. Like it's it's not anything that shows up in the stat sheet. Hasn't played more than 25 snaps in a game. I think maybe 24, if I remember correctly, was the most he has played in a game thus far. I don't know if that's the exact number, but it's somewhere around there. And people haven't been complaining like, oh, where is he? And it's nice because, again, he sort of has the luxury of having guys like Javon Kinlaw where he doesn't have to play 45 snaps a game, so he's allowed to sort of to to kind of grow into – into the season, he's not immediately counted on right away to to be a a stud, um, which is tremendous for him. And the other thing, and I don't remember if you've explained this on the podcast or if you just explained this to me off the air, but Pro Football Focus is not a the way that they aggregate statistics does not mean he's played twenty snaps and he's played well on those twenty snaps, and so his number is automatically going to be higher than someone that has more snaps that could possibly dilute those numbers. Basically, the more stats you accumulate and the more you play, the higher your number gets. Correct. Yeah, and we have exceptions to that, and that would be, you know, South Carolina has the most notable exception of that, of Kevin Harris is going to end the season as the highest-ranked player in the country um, (laughs) because he had six snaps and did significant damage on those six snaps. Um, But unless you're sitting there and having a, you know, highlight reel run, um, you know, breaking five tackles on one play or something like that, you're really not going to have the opportunity to um, accumulate a higher PFF number if you're doing what you're supposed to, especially – at say defensive or offensive line, um, you know, you're, you're playing well, you're not going to be able to jump off the page with 10 snaps. But as we get to this point in the season, we have guys that, even the guys that aren't playing a lot, you know, you've got Zach Pickens there at you know, 77.4. He's only played 124 snaps. That's a, you know, that would be the same as, say, Javon Kinlaw would play in two or three games. Um, and so we're, we're starting to get the volume there where we can, he can start to build his number up. It usually starts about 60. Um, and as he continues to play well, he'll you know keep building up to you know 70, 80, you know if he plays really well in the 90 range. Um, but he's going to have less opportunity to do that 
to do that than, say, a Javon Kinlaw, who's going to play three, four times as many snaps. The real focus of, I think, the fans' ire when we're talking about the defense, you know, even in that first game, people were just upset about the entire unit. Uh, but for the most part, people have been able to discern that the line's been pretty good, the linebackers have been pretty good. Everyone's just sort of been angry at the safeties all season, although Will Muschamp said last week that the safeties have been better. They were better against Missouri. They were better against Kentucky. Have those numbers sort of balanced out after a rocky early start to the season, or are they still relatively low? So they are starting to to build up a little bit, um, and it, it's hard to tell because, you know, um, Kentucky's offense didn't really grade out well at all. Um, they had a couple receivers that, that played well enough, um, but wouldn't that's not going to balance out Alabama, who just, let's be honest, just absolutely torched South Carolina secondary, as they have to pretty much every team this season that they've played. Um, so when you play a team like in Alabama, um, that can really skew some of your numbers. I mean, you, I'm looking at some of the numbers for the safeties, and um, they're not good, but a lot of it is, you know, a 35 grade against Alabama or a 40 grade against Alabama is going to be really hard to, to bounce back from without, um, you know, a breakout game. And, if we look at the safeties, we've got maybe one interception, I think, has been from a safety. Um, you know, no real standout plays that are going to completely um, take away what happened against Alabama, um, which is really weighting heavily on on their scores. But you know, that being said, we've got R.J. Roderick at a 67.5 on the season, which is, you know, pretty good. His run defense grade is the second best on the team. Um, his tackling grade is, you know, really uh, pretty good, and he hasn't rushed the passer a lot, but when he has, he has two pressures in, in four um, four blitzes. So, you know, 50% pressure rate um, when he goes after the quarterback is, is not bad. Um, so I think you'll start to see as the rotation becomes more um, settled um, that these guys will start to, you know, build their grade up a little bit more. But when you are building from a 40 instead of, say, a 60, your PFF grade is not going to look good no matter how well you play. And you mentioned uh, last week the development of Jamie Robinson, obviously him coming on strong. I, I think continuity and consistency and not moving pieces around, because they were doing that a lot earlier in the season. I mean, I think the first defensive snap against North Carolina, and maybe that whole series, I don't remember, Israel Mukamu was playing safety. John Dixon was starting at one of the corner slots, and obviously that's changed a couple of times, and now the rotation's different with Jamias Williams being gone for one game and now for the rest of the season. So I, I imagine that's something that will continue to sort of balance itself out as that group gets a little more consistency. I mean, just like with anything, we're going to talk about the offensive line in a second. I think I think continuity is really important there. Carolina hasn't really had that um, with, obviously, missing Dylan Wadham for the Kentucky game and having a couple of different guards in a different center from the North Carolina game to the next three games. There's been uh, there's been a lot of turnover there, and I think the, maybe the probably the secondary and the offensive line are the units that are most reliant on you know having that continuity, having that comfort with one another, knowing – you know, okay, well, yeah, I can count on this guy to uh, to pick this up, and just kind of knowing other guys' trends and things like that will will help. I, I think that unit build as a whole. Absolutely, and I mean, you know, you've got Jamie Robinson now in a consistent position. You've got um, Israel Mukwamu not having to worry about am I going to play safety this game or do I need to rotate out there. Um, you know, when you're playing that one position, it's a lot easier to get locked in and knowing that you're going to get the snaps and not having the rotation. You could definitely see the coaching staff was really. I think just kind of trying guys out and kind of seeing, you know, they, they definitely didn't have um, a complete idea of what um, the secondary would look like at the beginning of the season. And now they're starting to kind of have their five that they're rolling with. And you'll see them, you know, roll with a few less or a few more, depending on what kind of offense they're playing. But um, getting to play at the same position and consistently have those snaps 
will definitely help in the long run. Does PFF have overall like offense and defense numbers? Yes. So where is Carolina's entire defense? So their entire defense, let me look this up real quick. Um, I looked it up earlier, and I think it's 26th or 27th. I'll pull it up right now. Um, so among Power 5 teams, um, trying to filter out some of the you know, lesser competition that you know, plays, um, you know, plays less that are at 27th with a 84.4 overall rating. Um, which puts them really within striking distance. Clemson is 21st. Um, you know, you've got a, a lot of the other teams around uh, that 20 range. That um, there's not a big difference between, say, the, the 12th best team and the 25th best team um, as far as defense goes. Um, but it puts them right in the middle of the SEC. And obviously, they played Alabama, and any team that's played Alabama is really low on this list. <laughs> so. It's not the defense that is necessarily the reason that Carolina's two and three, and and I'm not gonna like do this this like trap like classic talk radio thing where I say, well, then it must be the offense's fault. I, I think there are other things at play here that are harder to put a finger on, I guess, as to why this team has underachieved in their first five games. Uh, but I imagine the overall number for the offense isn't as high as its defensive counterpart. No, it's a, they're at a sixty-six point six, which is um, now granted that's one less game than. A, few of the teams on this list, but it puts them 13th in the SEC, very, very close to, say, an Auburn um, or Ole Miss or even a Florida. Um, there's not a lot of separation between really 4 and 13 in the SEC offensively. So where is that nationally? That would be 41st nationally. Okay, not actually as um, bad as I expected. Yeah, so not really that bad. Um, they've definitely been hurt by some inconsistency. Um, and I posted this on Gamecock Central the other day. They played some really underrated defenses. Um, Kentucky and Missouri actually have, by PFF, better ranked defenses than Alabama and Georgia. Um, so it's not like South Carolina is playing some, um, you know, FCS, you know, really easy defenses. Missouri's defense is probably one of the top 10 defenses in the country, and I don't think that's a crazy statement to make. Um, the numbers have them actually ranked at number two um, in the country, and so, um, you know, they played Missouri, they played Kentucky, who has a good defense, they played Alabama, who has a good defense, um, they played, you know, Georgia this year. It's just kind of the nature of the beast when you play in the SEC. So let's start with the quarterback position. Since we're talking about offense, Carolina's obviously had a couple different quarterbacks. They've had three different quarterbacks take snaps. I guess four if you count Corbett Glick handing it off to Kevin Harris. Um, but we'll just say two quarterbacks that have taken the majority of the snaps for the season, including a game where Ryan Helensky was a little bit banged up at Missouri. Uh, how have the Carolina quarterbacks graded out this year? So Ryan Helensky is at a 57.3, um, and Jake Gunley's at a 42.6 in his one game. Um, Holinsky was definitely hurt by a really poor performance against um, Missouri. Um, and he also, PFF, for whatever reason, didn't like Ryan Holinsky's performance against Alabama that much. Um, so he didn't grade out super well against, um, as well as the stats would suggest against Alabama, um, which doesn't pull his grade up, um, you know, very high. But he's really playing around average in most of his games. He's got a well above average game against Charleston Southern and then a well below average game against Missouri. Um, obviously probably a little bit banged up that game, um, playing a very good team, first uh, road start. Um, so all of that going against him. 
Um, but he, he's grading out really around average. At this point. And a lot of, I mean, adversity, not only playing with the injury, but having to come in sort of unexpectedly early as a freshman. I, I think they're, I think the fans especially are willing to, to ride with this guy and give him a, a little bit of time and a little bit of patience. But in terms of the numbers, that, that seems like one that jumps out in terms of what may be holding this offense and this team back. Because um, I imagine if we go over to the wide receivers for Carolina now, that they as a group, or at least as top two guys, have graded out really well. So um, Brian Edwards has graded out really well as a 71.4, but really nobody else has graded out um, that well. Sean Smith is definitely having a, a weird kind of up-and-down season. My personal opinion is um, it may be better served just to move him back to the slot and let him you know, take on younger, inexperienced slot, uh, slot corners, um, kind of like he did against Clemson, kind of like we've seen him do in the past. Um, but – you know, the, the wide receiver group as a whole has been very average for South Carolina. Hmm. So I was talking about it today, and I thought the, I guess, lack of an emergent third receiver was sort of an underplayed storyline of the year, but it is interesting to, to hear that Shy hasn't graded out that well. He's obviously, I think, been targeted a lot. I mean, I think probably comfortably second in targets on the team, uh, but that may have more to do with, like I said, that third guy not really emerging more than it does Shy necessarily being super productive. I'll be curious to see if that was something Will Muschamp mentioned a couple of tweaks. Um, obviously, they're going to do some things like that during the bye week. If we do see a little bit more of that, I know Xavier Leggett has gotten more playing time as the season has gone on. I wonder if that's a guy they feel like they can move to the outside, given that he's got a little bit bigger frame and, and move Shy back to the to the uh, middle of the field. Uh, the other part of this, though, and I don't know how exactly this is separated out in pro football focus, but uh, are the tight ends included in the wide receiver group or just, I mean, obviously just the receiving stats, or how does that factor into the equation so they're given receiving um you know receiving grades per game obviously they're going to block a little bit more so they're also going to get their blocking grade and their algorithm is going to factor in their blocking grade more than um they would for a receiver um but they they still grade out in the um in run blocking they still grade out in receiving just like a um wide receiver would um so we can look at that real quick as i pull up the receiving grades. Um, South Carolina really would like to have that tight end as a um, as their second best re- receiver. And, you know, Kyle Markway actually does have the second best receiving grade on the team, um, 66.4. Um, he hasn't dropped a pass this season, according to PFF, um, you know, which is which has been good. And um, as overall, the passer rating when targeting him is 94.8, which is not amazing, but definitely – you know, a lot better than it, it could be with some of these um, some of these other guys. But I think um, if I were South Carolina's coaching staff, I would be focused on getting Kyle Markway more consistent targets and seeing if that you could get Shy Smith in the slot because that's where he's going to be um, that's where he's going to be more effective in the slot. And I might sacrifice a second outside receiver, dominant outside receiver for Shy Smith in the slot. Yeah, that, that, they have so many things that it feels like they, they can do and just haven't quite figured out how to shuffle those pieces. Nick Muse, I, I imagine he doesn't have a super-duper grade because he had the fumble against Charleston Southern. I know he's had two or maybe three drop passes on the season, but he's someone that continues to impress me whenever he does get the ball in his hands. He seems particularly dynamic for a wide receiver, and I know, you know, I mean, his first couple games, he's really just getting acclimated to a new offense, a new system, uh, frankly, an entirely new level of competition, speed, strength of college football going from William & Mary, not just to 
like FBS, but to SEC football. So, but he's another guy that I would look to, to to sort of maybe make up for Carolina's lack of having a third receiver. It seems like you know Markway's kind of kind of done that in a lot of ways. But if they can get Muse going in the second half of the season, that could be another interesting wrinkle for him. Maybe even running, you know, more. Kind of like what the Patriots do. The Patriots would run a lot of like 12 and 22 personnel and throw out of it and take advantage of their tight ends matched up on safeties and linebackers and, you know, really be able to exploit what I always call the market inefficiency of football, which is, you know, a good pass catching tight end. Um, but yeah. I guess that's something that would be sort of a low key thing that I'm keeping my eye on for the rest of the season. Um, the offensive line, I think we've kind of talked about them each game. And in general, they, they seem to be run blocking well, you know, like probably about average and not to spoil it, but the running backs have, have really done them uh, a lot of a lot of favors. Uh, the pass blocking, I think, has been a little bit up and down. The numbers probably aren't great in terms of, like, the box score. And I've kind of gone through, and they've given up a lot of sacks. When they have given up the sacks and how they've given up the sacks don't don't make me particularly concerned about this group pass blocking. Uh, but are the numbers generally favorable or not with Carolina's offensive line this year? So, I mean, it, it really depends. So, According to PFF, um, and, you know, every once in a while, they, they count their own stats. So sometimes they'll count a scramble as a sack or a sack as a scramble or, you know, something like that. So according to PFF, they've given up 10 sacks. Um, of that, one of them was given to Dakari and Joyner for holding the ball too long. Um, one of them was Hake Manos, who doesn't, you know, isn't starting anymore. Eric Douglas had one. Um, Jake Bentley had one, which leaves your everyday starters um, with Hutcherson has given up one, Rhodes has given up one. Gwynn has given up one, and Jalen Nichols gave up two last week, um, according to PFS, uh, which overall is not terrible. If you're looking at, you know, your five every everyday linemen have given up five sacks all season. Um, that's not the worst that you could possibly be. I think they've got a, given another one to a tight end um, at some point. They missed a block or something like that. But overall, pressure-wise, um, Bill Monum has given up the most pressures with Seven, or with nine in five games, um, or four games, um, and right now he's hurt. And of those, only one of them resulted in the quarterback actually getting touched. Um, all the other ones were quarterback hurries where whoever the quarterback was was able to get the ball away um, before he was even contacted by the defense. So, you know, if not that any pressure is good, but um, a hurry, if you're going to give something up, is a lot better than – say, a sack or even a quarterback hit. That's an interesting distinction. I, I wonder, I, I'm thinking about this too much now, but if, if I ever uh, get the chance to ask Eric Wolford, I, I wonder if there's, a, if there's a way that they teach those guys how to block where, you know, if, if you're basically if you're getting beat, you can turn it into a pressure instead of a sack or something like that. There, there's probably some sneaky O-line tricks to, to, mm-hmm. to cover up any mistakes that you may make in, in like the first two seconds of a play to, to kind of salvage it at the end. But I guess that's a, probably a conversation for another time if I can ever get Wolf on the podcast. Um, Last yeah. position group we haven't touched on yet are the running backs, and uh, sort of by design because there's not much to say about them other than they've been, I think, fantastic all around. Um, so your top three grades by qualifying offensive players for South Carolina um, belong to Tavian Feaster, um, 83.1 and an 88.0 um, rushing grade, which is the best in the country. Um, you have Mon Denson, second with a 77.9, and Rico Dowell third with a 77.4. They've been fantastic this season. I did not realize that mine had climbed into that list. I, I guess got a little bit more action against Kentucky. So, so what's what's different with these guys? Is, is Thomas Brown the greatest running back coach in the world? Honestly, I think the, the play design has been good. It's been giving them the ball in space a little bit more, um, but they're really just avoiding contact um, and 
breaking tackles at a higher rate than they ever have. Um, I'm looking at last season, um, the entire running back group, the entire season on 390 carries avoided 61 tackles. Um, This season on 149 carries, so about a little bit over one-third of the carries, um, have avoided 48 tackles. So there's 13 avoided tackles away from tying last season's mark, um, and they're five games in. Wow. (laughs) Uh, I I guess that makes a big difference. I I just don't understand how these guys all look like different running backs. It it doesn't make any sense to me. These are the same guys. Like, I understand Rico is healthy, and I guess Tavian wasn't, you know, featured – I mean, he wasn't featured at Clemson, and then obviously now he's in a new place, so everything about that is different. And for Mon, like, he was good in stretches last year, and, you know, down the stretch when Carolina's running backs were banged up, he did a reasonably good job. But all of these guys, it, it looks like Carolina got three different running backs from last year to this year. Where I would probably say, just this is, I have no stats to back it up, it's just what I've kind of seen with my own eyes, is that um, I think that Thomas Brown has done an excellent job of getting his running backs in the best position for them individually to succeed. Um, Mon Denson has always been a tough runner, but you know, he's, we always gave Trent Richardson a hard time in the NFL for not being able to see a hole. Uh, Mon Denson, to me, is one of those guys that's just going to close his eyes and turn his legs, and he's probably going to break a couple tackles, but he's going to miss, you know, um, you know, miss some holes there, here and there, and he ran, I think, a lot um, in a zone-blocking scheme last year, or at least in some zone plays where he had to pick out where he needed to cut and things like that. Um, and this year, I think they really just kind of handed him off the ball and said, go run over people. Um, and it's, I think it's you know, obviously seems to be working. Um, he's only avoided three tackles, but he's averaging seven yards per, uh, per carry after contact. So he's literally, when he gets hit, is just dragging people. Um, and then you have Rico Dowdle, who I think, well, first of all, is healthy. But they're putting him in that one-cut system where he can kind of run, take a stretch play or take a zone play and, and kind of pick out what hole he wants to run through and then burst through with you know, some pretty good acceleration. And the same thing with Tavian Feaster. They're giving them the ball um, in open space. They're getting them the ball the outside um, and really mixing up the run play or, you know, the running well. And he's averaging, um, you know, 4.9 yards a carry after contact. Uh, so he's avoided 17 tackles and 50 carries, um, which is by far the best rate that South Carolina's had um, from a running back in a long time. Seems easy. Seems intuitive. You know, let the running backs do what they do best. But I guess there's also, you know, part of coaching that is, you know, this is kind of what we do on offense. We're going to fit these guys into this. But I mean, it really is amazing uh, the difference a year makes. And and whether it's the coaching staff, whether it's health, whether it's the arrival of Tavian Feaster sort of pushing the other guys, which I think is no small factor here, especially in the case of Rico Dowdle. I mean, it's it's been a revelation. It's been fun. The only disappointment is going into the season. I thought if Carolina can fix their running game, which was not there last year, this offense could be you know, not elite, but very good. And it hasn't quite clicked yet. And again, there's, there's been, there's been turnover. I having a couple offensive linemen shuffling and out throughout the course of the season, obviously switching at the quarterback position, trying to find out who is that third wide receiver, you know, a whole bunch of things that have made it hard for Carolina to excel in those first five weeks. But as the season progresses, assuming they can keep a relatively consistent group, assuming there are no more changes on the offensive line, you know, maybe Josh Van or Xavier Leggett really finally takes a hold of that third receiver spot. Maybe Shy starts playing a little bit better. Maybe they move him back into the slot. It feels like the pieces are here for this offense to be more dangerous than it has been. And I think a lot of it does have to do with the level of competition, but, you know, frankly, it doesn't get easier with, you know, you've got Georgia and then Florida over the next two weeks. Um, so, you know, hopefully by um, Tennessee, South Carolina's offense can figure it out. But um, it is really tough when you have to sit there and say, 
all right, South Carolina, you know, figure out your offense. All you have to do is play Georgia. Um, (laughs) And all you have to do is play Florida, who just completely made Auburn look pedestrian. And Auburn was ranked, you know, 10th in the country, maybe overranked a little bit. But, um, you know, when you have to play tough defense week in and week out, um, those little tweaks are harder to – um, harder to assess, harder to see if they work, um, and just you know, game planning against SEC defenses is, is difficult. Um, so I think as Ryan Holinsky continues to progress, as the receivers continue to get a little bit more comfortable, as the, the timing continues to um, to work, and as this offense you know continues to find its identity, I think it will get better as the season goes on. Well, our next opportunity to see them is on Saturday. See what kind of tweaks the coaching staff may have made during the open week and see what just another week of, of getting practice, getting reps, being healthy does for Ryan Helensky. So uh, looking forward to the game. I mean, not expecting anything for Carolina. They're a 24 or 25 point underdog, depending on where you look. But uh, again, just to see kind of what this team looks like, because we just went through it and the numbers, I think would indicate that Carolina should be better than two and three that they're not. Maybe will mystify us for the rest of the season. Um, but our, our, like I said, our next opportunity to see what changes have been made and, and what the next step is for this season on Saturday. Uh, before I let you go, Will, were there any stats that we didn't touch on, anything big picture, any individual player that stood out that we didn't mention that you wanted to get to? Um, just keep watching the defensive line because this has been the best defensive line, I think you said it earlier, probably since 2012. Um, you know, we didn't really touch on the linebackers a lot, but um, the linebackers are playing well behind the defensive line and it's actually making the defensive line look better. Uh, because, you know, the numbers last year suggested that the defensive line was pretty decent, um, and the linebackers really struggled to clean up plays behind them. Um, and this year, with better linebacker play, it just looks better from a um, fan perspective. And so just continue to watch, if you, you know, if people are watching the game. Uh, don't be afraid to watch the defensive line. Don't always watch the ball, because there's some really good defensive linemen on South Carolina's team, um, and there's some really good young defensive linemen on South Carolina's team. Mm. Could be good for years to come. Zach Pickens, Rick Sandage, JJ Anagbari. Oh, man. I know, uh, I think, I think John Scott's licking his chops over there. He knows he's got a, a good group for, for several years to come. Well, great stuff as always. Thank you so much. This was fun. I know people were asking, looking forward to this midseason review. So I appreciate you, uh, you doing that. Y'all follow him on Twitter at WHelms21. Read him on Gamecock Central and be sure to check out his website, prepra.com. That's prep-ra.com for anything you need to help you get prepared if you're an athlete to play at the next level. I mean, literally everything from football stuff to SAT prep and tutoring, things like that. He's got it covered. Will, that's really cool. Everything you do is awesome. You, you're, you're the man, actually. I We still haven't met in person. I have so much enjoyed this. I've always enjoyed reading you and following you on Twitter and interacting with you digitally, which I guess is still kind of what we're doing, although we're on a real phone here. Um, but you do a lot of really great stuff, and, and y'all need to keep up with Will. Sorry, I, I, don't, I don't mean to like embarrass you right here at the end of the podcast, but I've just I really enjoyed this. But uh, thanks so much, and I know you're busy, so I'll let you uh, get back to it. But we'll talk to you next Monday. Appreciate it. Thanks again so much to Will. Great stuff there, as always. Make sure to follow him on Twitter at WHelms21. Read his stuff on Gamecock Central, and check out his website, prepra.com. That's prep-ra.com. Can't wait to talk to him next Monday, because this this Georgia matchup is very intriguing and certainly not favorable for Carolina, but we'll have much more on that uh, later in the week. We're going to go back in the huddle, get a little X's and O's look at what Carolina does, what they need to do to beat Georgia, and what Georgia does that just makes them so damn good. Rate, review, subscribe, share with your friends. Thank you all so much for listening and we'll talk to you again later this week it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane 
So shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.